for the delay. Uh, since we are running behind, I'll try to keep this really short. Um, welcome. Uh, just a quick reminder to please turn off your cell phones or put them on silent. Uh, my name is Marin Getman. I'm your moderator today. Uh, also, just to let you know, this will be recorded, uh, Shaw TV over there in the corner, and they do broadcast it on their channel several times during the day, so if you miss anything, you can go back and check that out. Uh, also, just a reminder to place your money in the little plastic bowls on the table there if you are having lunch, and if you can, get someone to count it before we come around and grab the bowls at the end of the session. Um, we'll do about 25-30 minutes for the talk, 30 minutes for lunch, and then 30 minutes for question period. We'll try to finish around 1.30, hopefully. Um, Dr. Brian Kolb uh, is our speaker today. He is a neuroscientist at the Canadian Centre for Behavioural Neuroscience. That's up at the UofL there. Uh, his interests are in brain development, plasticity, and brain changes over time. He has received the Order of Canada, published many books and articles, and has been a part of the teams turning the UofL into a hotbed of neuroscience research. So today, uh, oh sorry, he, it is recognized that childhood stress and abuse has many consequences. Dr. Kolb has spoken in the past about how this can cause certain genes in the brain to be turned on or off, and how these changes can be passed from one generation to another. So today he will explain how severe stress, for example, in residential schools can cross generations and cause all kinds of problems later on. Uh, topic today is can neuroscience help solve some of the problems of colonialism or help First Nations communities heal? So please join me in welcoming Dr. Brian Kolb. Great, thanks, Marin. Thanks, everybody, for coming. This is the third public talk I've given in the last 24 hours on the, <laughs> and the, the third topic. Um, those of you who were really um, up this morning at 7 could have come to the Sunrise Rotary and heard about cannabis. Um, <laughs> I'm happy to answer questions on that, too. Okay, so this may sound like a little presumptuous that somehow neuroscientists could make the world right uh, in response to colonialism, but what I'm going to do is to tell you what we are actually doing um, to try and make things better at any rate. So I was talking to my wife uh, the last time I saw her three days ago and, <laughs> and um, uh, showed her the talk and she said, you know, everybody has a different definition of colonialism, so you're going to have to say what you actually mean when you start. So that's what I'm doing. So you know what happened in 1492, nothing here. Uh, but things happened in North America, and it really didn't start until the 1800s here with immigration to the West, and following um, the uh, settlers coming, we had some sort of interactions, uh, obviously, with the settlers and with the indigenous people, leading to uh, treaties, uh, Treaty Number 8 and 7 we're aware of because they're in Alberta, and of course the Indian Act, and the Indian Act essentially made the indigenous people wards of the government. That's over hundred years ago. Um, in the 1880s, uh, the buffalo were decimated, there was tuberculosis, which took a terrible toll, and we had uh, obviously poverty because there was nothing to eat and people were quite ill. We had a solution to that, 
whether this was um, the Prime Minister's idea, whose idea is up for debate, but the, the point is we all know that the government decided that they would get rid of the native problem by establishing residential schools. And so the students of the schools, of course, were the children who were taken away from their families uh, without any um, consultation. Uh, that only ended um, a few years ago. So this is a, a long-term um, non-solution, as it turns out. And the effect in the in 2000s um, is racism, uh, poverty, and uh, social problems. And one of the, the things that I want to point out uh, with respect to racism, this isn't uniquely Canadian. This isn't uniquely human. And I'll give you an example of uh, a non-human uh, example. Uh, we had uh, a, long, a long coat chihuahua who hated all other dogs except long coat chihuahuas. Now, there aren't that many of them around, but if we were taking her for a walk and she saw one, she was in love. She saw anything else, she was going to kill it. She's only this big, right? <laughs> so she clearly was a racist. So this, this is an issue that we're, we're always afraid of things that aren't like us. So let's just file that away. Okay. In order to talk about this, however, I'm going to have to um, give you some background information which is going to seem a little irrelevant at the beginning and hopefully you'll see that it's quite relevant. So I want to tell you how the brain develops because this you are your brain and it's important to, under, to understand the effects of experiences uh, on us. So the, if you were making a, a liver, you could have a blueprint of a liver and you could make a liver, but you can't do that with the brain. It's just far too complicated. So the brain has um, 86 billion neurons. Yes, it's been counted by a machine. So we know that's the correct number. Uh, there are 10 to the 14th connections. So we've got more connections than there are stars in the universe. It's an enormous number. Now, you could not plan that in advance. So how do you do it? The Mother Nature has decided to use what I'm going to call the Michelangelo solution. When Michelangelo was making Statue of David, what did he do? He started with a big block of stone and had some chisels and got rid of half of it. So Mother Nature said, that's how we'll make a brain. So when you were conceived, you started making a brain and you created, by the time you were born, twice as many brain cells as you have now. And then when you, once you were born, you spent the next 20 years getting rid of the ones you didn't need. Okay, and so they, they were chiseled away. Experiences are the chisel. Hormones are the chisel that are getting rid of all of this. So why would you need a system like this? Well, if you're uh, born into a family that spoke Blackfoot and not English, you have to be able to discriminate different sounds in Blackfoot than in English. If you're raised in an English house, as I was, you don't need to be able to discriminate Blackfoot uh, sounds. You just get rid of those cells. Don't need those, which is why we have accents, because we, don't, we can't make the discriminations that we should be able to make to speak these other languages. You can speak languages that are related. You can speak French, unless you're Joe Clark. You can speak French without much of an accent, but um, not Hungarian. It's just not going to work. OK, so that's how we make a brain. Now, the key point here, people will say, well, you know, are you a product of your genes or your environment? And the answer is, well, both, because they meet, as you can see here, in a, a land called epigenetics. So what does that mean? We all have chromosomes. We have 24,000 genes, roughly. And those genes are not all on. Some are on and some are off. So in, in any given cell, 
uh, the DNA is the same. So if you think about cells that form your skin or your hair or your eyes, your bones, your brain, those cells don't look the same. So why don't they look the same if they have the same DNA? They don't look the same because different genes are turned on and turned off. So environment can turn genes on and can turn uh, genes off. And so that is how you have this interplay of, of, of experience and genes. In the middle you have epigenetics. Now, one of the things you need to know, when I took my first course in the brain in 1966, believe it or not, um, the idea that the brain changed throughout life would have been seen as ridiculous. Of course it doesn't change. You're born with this brain, it's little, it's job is to get big. That's what we thought happened. We now know, I've already told you, that's not what happens. It starts out little in appearance, but it has twice as many cells as you have in yours now. So what we know is that the brain can change, and if any of you can remember anything I said tomorrow, I got in your brain and changed it, because the only way you can have a memory is by a structural change in the brain. We've actually got to change the structure of neurons in the brain. That's what we do uh, to learn. If you forget it, that structural change is lost, okay? So, we have brain plasticity, and the effects of epigenetics can cross generations. Maybe now you can see where I'm going. So experiences that your dad had before you were conceived can affect your children's brain development. This is a transgenerational effect. It's, the effect is actually bigger in males than in females, and people are often surprised at that. They say, well, why is that? You know, it's the mum, for God's sake. It's the mum, but don't forget, the mum's eggs are formed uh, when she's developing in utero, and those eggs don't change. Those eggs stay the same. Men throw away their sperm every 40 days and make new sperm, so it's constantly being turned over. So the gene expression in the sperm can be altered by experience, and it is. I won't go into how, but uh, trust me that we have good evidence, not we, the field has good evidence that that's the case. All right. So we've now got epigenetics. Epigenetics is controlling brain plasticity, and that leads to changes in behavior, mental health, and whatnot. All right. So what I want to do is to give you a couple of examples of good things that can happen to the brain because of experiences, then some bad things, and then tell you about what we're doing to try and reverse bad things in indigenous populations. So good things. One of the things that has a huge impact on us is tactile stimulation. So you can see that in, in this figure, you've got the kangaroo in the middle, and so this is often called kangaroo care for obvious reasons. The kangaroo is in that pouch for a long time. But you've got skin-to-skin -skin contact. And why is the skin-to-skin -skin contact? Whether it's within the, in the top left, you can see a pregnant woman who's getting a massage. You can see skin-to-skin uh, -skin contact with the dad over on the right, and down below, you can see a baby getting a massage, and you can see two rats. One rat being a, a mother rat who's that brush looks a little hostile. It's supposed to be a child's hairbrush. It's not spiky. Um, believe me, she wouldn't put up with that if it was. Or we've got a little baby rat that's being stroked with a little brush. So why would we do that? Why would the skin make any difference? Well, those of you who can think way back to high school biology, if you took it, or university biology, is that the skin and the brain come from the same germ layer during development. So what? Well, it means that they respond to the same chemicals. So I want you to think what happens. If you um, walk out here on the ice and you slip and you fall on the pavement and you, you scrape your hand, what do you do? You rub it. Why do you rub it? Well, it feels better. Why does it feel better? 
because you're making chemicals in the skin that are starting to repair the skin. Oh, if you think about what I just said, those chemicals must also go into the brain, and they do. So we have receptors in the brain for compounds made in the skin. So if you um, tactilely stimulate uh, a baby, or the mum in this case, you actually can change the production of a compound called FGF1. FGF1 crosses the blood-brain barrier, goes into the brain, and changes the brain. You don't even have to touch the skin. In Europe, they use a, um, a broad-spectrum light to treat third-degree burns. That light does the same thing. You can actually use the light, which will um, produce the FGF1 in the skin, which goes into the brain. Okay? So why is tactile stimulation important in this context? One of the things in residential schools that kids were not allowed to do is hug one another, is to touch one another. They could not do that. And in fact, even today, um, I was in, um, I'll come back to this, I was up in Ermanskin, uh, used to be called Hobima, yesterday, um, related to a project we're, we're working on. And the women that I was uh, interacting with said, no, their, their grandparents would not allow them to be hugged. They could not hug their grandparents because it wasn't allowed. Okay, so the tactile stimulation uh, was lost. Okay. So when you do this, and in the case of our animal studies, either gestational or the infantactile stimulation uh, changes the brain and changes brain development. So imagine this, we've got a baby rat, they're about this big, like a little Vienna sausage. We line them up, we use a Swifter, they do them all at once, uh, for 15 minutes, three times a day for 10 days, and we don't touch them again until they're adults. So four months later, we investigate their motor behavior, their cognitive behavior, their social behavior, and they're far superior to their littermates who did not get that tactile stimulation. We've, we've gone in there and changed their brain. Does that tactile stimulation cross generations? I can't answer that. Uh, that's in progress, but I'm guessing it does because nasty things cross generations, so good things hopefully can do the same thing. All right, so another example that's important here is early language exposure. Early language exposure changes the brain. If you look at kids when they're um, one, some precocious girls may have 12 words or 15 words, but boys won't have any. But by, by one and a half, the kids are starting to produce uh, words. And it turns out you can identify different trajectories. These trajectories are really important. So they've got a trajectory here that, to my eyes, is, is sort of greeny blue, this top one that says hi. So these kids, by age 36 months, have about 1,200 words. Um, we've got kids who have lower amounts, and let's just drop to the low. They're around 400 words. Now, why is that? Why do these kids have a different trajectory? And I'm going to tell you that that tra trajectory is forever. After 36 months, these kids are hooped. You've got to get the trajectory changed. But why do they have it? It's not because their parents are stupid. It's not because it's not related to IQ. It's related to the way the parents interact with the child. The, what we talk about is serve and return conversation. So I'm going to have a conversation with you and say, have you got a new car? I noticed when I drive by your house. So she doesn't. <laughs> but we're looking at one another. We have eye contact and so on. It's quite different than if I was talking to Dennis and I was saying, yeah, Dennis, why don't you go over there and watch TV or something? That's not an interaction. And so what you see is that, there have been lots of studies on this, that the kids who have low vocabulary levels have, do not have enough serve and return interactions with their caregivers. 
perhaps, and, and I'm going to tell you it's related to socioeconomic status, perhaps because the parents um, are too busy, they've got multiple jobs, lots of reasons why this could be, but that seems to be the, the explanation. All right, this is uh, going to be important because you need to have uh, high language skills in order to have good jobs and um, high literacy. I'll just throw this out. 50% of the population of Canada is, is considered by the OECD to be illiterate. That's a really high number. It's higher in the US, which you might imagine, of course. Um, I won't say more about that. OK, bad things. So one of the um, set of studies that I think is informative here in, re in relationship to the indigenous populations is uh, adoption. The apprehension rate for children on reserves is extraordinarily high. That is, they're taken away from their families. And if you look at kids who are adopted from other countries, so Russia, um, China, uh, Vietnam, and so on, um, these kids do not do well unless they stay in the same family for the rest of their childhood. But they don't. They move around. And what you can see here, the duration of adversity. So these kids' brains are being looked at when they're 15 years old. And you can see differences in their brains. So children adopted at a mean age of about 12 months. And it, we're looking in the brains at 12 to 14 years. And the, the bottom line here is they have reduced IQs, reduced cognitive skills, and they have changes in the brain that I won't get into. Just trust me that regions of the brain important for cognition are smaller in these kids. That's what that says. OK, that's a bad thing. So is stress. And you can have stress at various times. Preconceptual stress, I've alluded to the fact that your parents' preconception behavior is going to affect your brain development and your kid's brain development. Uh, gestational stress and postnatal stress. I'll just say something about gestational stress here. So you may remember the Quebec ice storm of 1998. Um, it was in the coldest winter, compared to this one, I'm not sure. But anyway, <laughs> the coldest winter in a very long time in Quebec, and people were without power in some places for up to six weeks. If you were pregnant, this could be extraordinarily stressful. And it turns out this is what it looks like. The grid was destroyed from the ice. And so the effect of this is that the, the people have been studying these kids at various ages, as you can see, and they're now um, teenagers, almost 20, I guess, um, and they were doing MRIs in these kids' brains. I can't tell you about that because that's not published yet. Um, but we do know that their IQ is lower, their cognitive behavior is lower relative to siblings who were born before the ice storm. In case you can use, you have a control group, kids born before the ice storm and then the kids who were gestational during the ice storm. It was only six weeks. Can you think of other situations where this would be relevant? Fort Mac fire. So there's studies now going on with Fort Mac uh, people, Calgary flood and whatnot. So natural disasters provide us of an example here. I'm just going to see if this postnatal stress. Trust me, stress at all these times makes a difference. All right, this gets us to colonialism. The effects of these stressors crosses generations. So you saw this slide already. That's what I'm talking about when I talk about colonialism. So in 2018, what do we see? I put 2017 because I used this in December, sorry. I pretend it says 2018. It hasn't changed. So you've got a high number of kids in foster care, about 4%. These are ones who are in foster care at any given time. But on some reserves, the apprehension rate is closer to 50% for these kids. Half of them are at some point taken away from their family for various reasons, uh, good or bad, I suppose, and then brought back. Um, we've got incarceration rates that are 
about a quarter of the prison population, even though the um, percentage of the population that's indigenous is far lower, of course. Um, life expectancy is low, youth suicide is higher. Uh, up in Ermanskin, where I just was, the uh, youth suicide is a crisis up there. Um, high drug use, especially opioids and alcohol, and actually, and cannabis. Um, um, poverty levels are high, and I've got the apprehensions there. Okay, this next slide is way too complicated, so I'm just going to tell you what happens. You've got somebody who's uh, taken to a residential school. Life isn't good. Now, I, I admit that there probably were some people where the life wasn't so bad, but on the whole, it wasn't so good. And that trauma changes their behavior. It changes the course of their brain development and changes the way they uh, parent as adults, which changes their kids. And that trauma has changed gene expression, and that gene expression is crossing generations. And I. I, ten years ago, I was up in Lac La Biche um, talking to the Northern Light School Division, and uh, I had to give a public lecture like this uh, to locals, and they were pretty much all um, natives. And th the conclusion was, uh, from the natives, this guy got up and he said, you're telling me we have an explanation for residential schools? And I said, yes, I do. He said, why hasn't anybody told us this? I said, I just did. It's epigenetics. And we just discovered this. This is all new. So we'll skip this slide which says that. So the idea here is that early experiences is altering brain development. So the thing is, can we somehow um, intervene? Is there something we can do? And I'm going to tell you there is. So let's go with the hypothesis that this early intervention can actually ameliorate some of the effects of colonialism, in particular, I think, residential schools. So in conjunction, with the Martin Family Initiative, and you all know who Mr. Martin was. Uh, it's Paul Martin, our former Prime Minister. We've undertaken a, a project to try and see if we can intervene in indigenous populations as soon as women um, become pregnant, have home visitors go into the community, and actually, uh, they're being trained right now, uh, and actually, uh, they're, they're from the community, actually uh, alter the course of these, child's, of these children's uh, early years and, and later development. So the, uh, you can get the idea here as to what we're up to. So the goal is to improve language and cognitive skills. It's to increase the prevalence of social play. One of the things that kids on reserves were not al allowed to do is play. There was an archaeologist doing a dig out at uh, Pacani at, at, at uh, Rocket, could find no evidence of play, toys, nothing out there. Um, post-residential schools, because in the schools they weren't allowed to play. Turns out that's not a good thing. Uh, reduced child welfare involvement and a better child readiness for kindergarten. So these are the, there are eight model schools set up by the Martin Family Initiative. And you can see, no you can't. Trust me, there are two in Alberta. Uh, there's one in Ermanskin and one in Pacani. And so there are uh, three in, uh, in uh, Ontario, a couple in Saskatchewan, and so on. These schools were funded by the federal government, and they started grade four, er, age four. What we're doing is getting kids ready for that. The kindergarten is special because it's an indigenous kindergarten that they're in a K-4 and K-5. That's what these model schools are doing. So is it possible for us to intervene? And the answer is yes, it is. We, uh, the the um, announcement is embargoed for legal reasons that have nothing to do with the program. Uh, it has to do with dotting I's and crossing T's, but in the next couple of weeks it'll be announced publicly. 
Uh, we have a program in place and we're actually um, beginning to train home visitors to go in. They've got to learn about grain development, they've got to learn about all kinds of stuff in order for them to do this, but it is possible to do it. And I think that um, we're hopeful that if the project works, um, and we're starting in Rubenskin, if the, if the project works, the current federal government has told the former prime minister, there's a certain relationship there obviously, uh, that they'll uh, fund it for all indigenous communities, but we have to demonstrate that it works. And so the, this money's not coming from the federal government. Um, and so uh, we're hopeful that'll happen. And uh, we have three years to prove it works and in a variety of uh, measures of outcomes, and then we go from there. So that's our plan. And that's 20 minutes.